And let's turn this morning to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter number 1. The Gospel of Mark, chapter number 1. And we'll be taking a look at only two verses from the Gospel of Mark, but then we'll be jumping over to the Gospel of Matthew um, in just a little bit, as there's more details that are provided um, regarding uh, the topic we have before us, which is the temptation of Christ. The temptation of Christ. Again, how he overcame uh, the temptations of the enemy, uh, the temptations of Satan, but also how we can overcome uh, temptations that come into our life. So let's read here in Mark chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 12, and I'll read down to verse number 13. And the Bible says, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and God, we thank you for this Lord's day that you've given us. And God, we thank you, Lord, that on the first day of the week of crucifixion week, Lord, our Savior rose again triumphantly. And God, I thank you, Lord, for the, for the spiritual victory, Lord, that has come through Jesus Christ. Lord, the fact that we serve a risen Savior, Lord, can mean that we can, we can live a life, Lord, uh, Lord, that overcomes both sin and death. And Father God, I pray you be with us this morning as we look at uh, the text before us in your precious word. God, I pray you teach us. I pray you guide us into truth. I pray that you would give uh, each and every person here this morning an attentive heart, Lord. God, not only to hear with their ears, but to hear with their hearts. And Lord, to allow the word of God to impact them and to speak to them. And Lord, to leave this morning changed, different, God, than when we arrived. Father God, I pray you'd help me this morning as I teach and as I preach. God, I pray that your spirit would uphold me and strengthen me, Lord. And God, help me today, Lord. I pray, God, that you would help me to be clear. Lord, as I preach your word this morning, help me to be faithful and to exalt Christ. Father God, again, speak to every heart this day, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, that if anyone here today has never been saved, today's not a salvation message, but I pray that if anyone here today has never been born again, they've never repented and believed the gospel, Lord, that today would be the day, Lord, when they would call upon Christ and find the joy and find the forgiveness. And find the everlasting life that is, uh, that is in Christ. God, I pray for every single believer that is here with us today, Lord. I pray for, uh, Lord, just their spiritual edification. God, I pray that they would grow in sanctification. I pray, Lord, that they would, Lord, pursue holiness. That they would pursue Christ-likeness. God, that they, would, that they would put off sin and put on Christ. Lord, that they would flee temptation. Lord, that they would live a, a life of spiritual triumph. A life of victory over sin. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just work, Lord, according to your will. Lord, have your will and way in this service. I pray that our hearts would be receptive to you. Receive the glory, I pray, in all that is said and all that is done. And Lord, in our response to the word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we began the series, uh, working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And as you see... Uh, again, we're not really in a hurry to get through the Gospel of Mark, and we may be here for a while, but that's exciting. And I know that's exciting to me because I look forward to uh, preaching through a gospel with you. Again, this is the first gospel that we've gone through as a church uh, from beginning to end, verse by verse. So we're going we're gonna to be working our way through this on Sunday mornings. And uh, last week, we looked at the baptism of Christ. I'm not going to go back and re-preach that for you if you missed it. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, but we looked at the baptism of Christ, and we looked at the scene in which, in which God the Father, um, in which God provided two miraculous signs, really to authenticate the ministry of Jesus Christ, and that the fact that he is truly the Messiah. Uh, we saw last week that the Father audibly proclaimed him as his beloved Son. God said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father delights in God the Son. God the Son, we see him in his earthly ministry, perfectly submitting to God the Father. And again, so much of this is beyond us, but we see this, this relationship within the Trinity, within the Godhead, which is fascinating for, uh, for us to look into and, and, and understand. And But we also see the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God visibly anointed Christ and empowered him for earthly service. And all throughout the earthly ministry of Christ, you see that Jesus Christ was under the control of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. That's fascinating for us to consider. 
And we see that here at his baptism. But again, we see here in verse number 12 that immediately, and we see words like that, immediately uh, we see, uh, again, and they all come from a certain adverb that is used, that is used here in Mark more than any other gospel, uh, which reminds us that the gospel of Mark is a gospel of action. It is a gospel of work. Uh, There's a lot of times, for example, in the temptation of Christ, where a lot of details are left out. And again, only two verses given uh, to the temptation of Christ, whereas other gospels, such as Matthew and Luke, spend much more time dealing with the temptation of Christ. So again, we're going to go to Matthew in just a little bit and look at some of those verses. Um, But we see that Mark, Mark goes from one thing to another thing to another thing very rapidly, very quickly, oftentimes. Um, But again, we're just going to slow down a little bit this morning and delve into these two verses here, but also go to some other passages and look at this in depth this morning. So we find here that immediately after his baptism, the Lord would undergo um, a season of severe temptation. Um, He would undergo a season of temptation. One Bible commentator said this. He said that the temptation is hell's prompt response to heaven's challenge in the inauguration. So you go from a very high point in the ministry of Christ, the inauguration of his public ministry at his baptism. The father audibly speaking, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit descending like a dove upon him, again, anointing him, empowering him for his earthly, for his public ministry. And you find here this grand scene at his baptism. You see you see the Trinity on full display. But then you go from this high point in his, in his ministry as he begins his public ministry at the age of 30 to a very low point in his ministry. A season of severe testing. A season of, 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 of hell's attack upon, upon Christ. A time of triumph and heaven's blessing to a time of testing and hell's attack. So we see here that Jesus has been proclaimed as God's son. Again, at his baptism, he has been proclaimed publicly. Um, as the Messiah, again, here at his baptism. But again, we're going to see in his temptation the fact that Jesus was tested, again, and he would display that he truly was the Son of God in overcoming sin. Again, in, 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 in uh, showing, again, that no satanic scheme, no satanic power, no power of hell could shake him. He was sinless, he was perfect, he was the Son of God. He was the eternal word of God made flesh and dwelling among us. And we see him overcoming the temptations of the enemy. Consider a couple of things. The first thing I want to consider is the place of temptation. The place of temptation. And the first thing we, I want to uh, consider this morning is we see that the place of his temptation was in a satanic stronghold. Verse number 12 says immediately, so just right after his baptism, Right after his baptism, the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. So we see here that Jesus is driven forth. Other gospels say that he was led by the spirit of God into the wilderness. The wilderness is a solitary place. It's a desolate place. It is an uninhabited place. It is a harsh place. It is a it is a lonely place. It is a barren wasteland. The wilderness was it was not a place for uh, that was conducive for, for human living. It was harsh and it was dry and it was hot and it was, again, it was, it was a barren place. Uh, the wilderness was a place where all the extremes of a sin-cursed world would have been seen and would have been felt. So it was a harsh place, both physically but also spiritually. Uh, Luke chapter 8 refers to the wilderness, again, as, as, an, as the abode of demons, Again, we see that the demons would live in the wilderness, or those who were demon-possessed were oftentimes found in the wilderness. They were driven out from civilization to, into, this, into this solitary place. So we see the wilderness was Satan's stronghold. Yet we find here this was the place where Jesus would undergo a season of temptation. Now before we come back to Christ, let's go back to the beginning and let's consider the first Adam. Let's consider the first man, Adam. Adam was placed in a perfect environment. He was placed in the Garden of Eden. No sin, none of these, none of these, uh, again, no sin-cursed world at that point. No perfect, fellow, perfect fellowship with God. 
Okay, none of these extremes that we find here, uh, that we find in the wilderness, it was a perfect environment. It was the place where God dwelt with his creation, where God dwelt with, with mankind. We find that Adam, the first man, we find that he felt miserably in, in that perfect environment. He gave in to sin. He plunged the world into sin because, of, because again, of his rebellion against, against God. The Bible refers to Christ as the second Adam. Christ is the second Adam from above. But Jesus Christ came into this world. He came into a sin-cursed world. We don't find his temptation in a perfect garden. We find his temptation in a harsh wilderness. We find that his temptation is in a sin-cursed environment. But what we find is the difference between the first Adam and the second Adam. The second Adam overcame. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, again, he overcame the temptations of the enemy. Again, he was victorious over those temptations. And we look to Jesus Christ as our example. We look to Jesus Christ as our deliverer. And it's because of Jesus Christ that, again, all those who follow after him can have victory. There is victory over sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we live, we live in the wilderness we live in a sin-cursed world. We live in a place, we live in an environment that is spiritually harsh and that is not conducive to Christian living. That is not conducive to living a holy life. And that is the environment in which we find ourselves, not in the garden. We find ourselves in a, in a sin-cursed world. In a place where, again, Satan again, has his way in the hearts and lives of so many of so many nations and governments and people all around the world. And even as believers, again, we have this fallen fleshly nature in which, which we carry around with us and which we have to mortify daily. We have to put to death the, the sinful desires of the flesh. But the encouraging thing is that through Jesus Christ, we can have victory. Through Jesus Christ, we can have victory over Temptation, even in an ungodly world, a Christian can live godly in an ungodly world. A Christian can shine brightly as a light in a world that is filled with spiritual darkness. Again, it's possible, but it's not, be, it's not possible because of you or me. It's possible because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. The Bible says in 1 John 4, verse 4, it says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, who does that glorify? That glorifies not us, that glorifies Christ. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Again, that is encouraging. And that shows us, again, that a Christian should not have a, a, a defeatist attitude regarding battling sin in his life. You can overcome sin. Now, again, no, no Christian is going to be sinlessly perfect in this life, but at the same time, you can live a life of victory over sin. It's possible, not because of us, but because of Christ. Again, because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, than he that is opposing our spiritual walk with God. Secondly, consider the place, or consider the fact that Christ's place of temptation was a place of human feebleness. Uh, consider, first, or consider Matthew 4, verse number 12. Matthew 4.12, we're told that, that the tempter came to Christ. It says, after Jesus, the Bible verse says, fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And it says, after, he was afterward hungered. Now, again, we go four hours without a meal. And again, I know, I know for myself, again, I'm hungry. All right, I, I wake up every morning and I'm, I'm ready to eat. Jesus Christ, we see here, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Again, you say, but he was God. He was God. He was fully God and he was fully man. Again, he had full the fullness of humanity and the fullness of God in one. Again, that was his nature. And we find here again that again he fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungered. As a human in his humanity, again, he was hungry. Just like you would be hungry, again, if you fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Luke chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. So we find here that in his humanity, Jesus Christ was at his weakest point. 
He was physically depleted. He was hungry. He hadn't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights. You can imagine how you would feel not eating anything for 40 days and 40 nights. Yes, something I want to point out with this is the fact that so often the strategy of the tempter, the strategy of Satan, is to come along and tempt us in our weakest moments. In our times of human feebleness, in our times when we are depleted physically, when, when we are depleted emotionally, when we are depleted spiritually, that is often when you become a prime target for the attacks of the enemy. That doesn't, ex- that doesn't excuse you giving in to sin, but that is so often. Again, you've, you've, had a, you've had a rough day. You've had a rough day at work. You're going through some trial. Um, again, uh, just one thing after another has built up through your day. Again, it's, it's been a rough day. And how often is that when Satan comes along and he brings temptation into your life? And that is why, again, it doesn't make it any more excusable to sin during those times. And sin is still sin, but at the same time, again, what, is, what that should be a reminder of is the fact that we are called to be watchful. We are called to be on guard at all times. Yesterday, in, in Men in the Word, we talked about, again, this topic a little bit. We talked about dealing with temptations. And again, one of the things that we covered was the fact that, that Satan never takes a day off. He doesn't take a holiday. He doesn't take off the weekends. He doesn't, again, he doesn't put in 8 to 5 and then, then clock out. No, again, he's working all the time. He's working to oppose you all the time. Now, don't be discouraged by that because 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But at the same time, you must be on guard. Be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, seeketh whom he may devour. He is out to destroy you. Again, and you, you may say, well, I'm saved, so what does it really matter? Again, yes, he can't do anything about your eternal destination and about your standing before God. But at the same time, he can destroy your testimony. He can destroy your effectiveness for Christ. He can destroy your witness. He can destroy your fellowship. And you know what else he can do? Again, through causing you to give in to sin, he can mar the name of Christ through your life. And for a believer in Christ, again, that should be, again, the last thing you would ever want to do is to bring reproach upon the name of the one who died for me. Again, I don't want anything in my life to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Again, I love my Savior, and again, I think of all that he has done for me, and I don't want there to be anything in my life that would bring reproach upon his name. And that is why, again, believers are called to live a life above reproach. And one of the ways we do that is by being on guard all the time, making sure that we're constantly walking in fellowship with Christ, making sure that we are cultivating our walk with God, making sure that we are walking in the spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Again, making sure that we are, we are on guard and recognizing that the enemy is, is, is working. The enemy is out uh, to attack us and to get us to... Uh, to get us to fall. Let's consider, secondly, the purpose of Christ's temptation. It was twofold. Number one, the first purpose was identification with sinful man. Now, Jesus Christ never sinned. Again, he was sinless. Yet we find that he both identified with sinful man in his baptism. We looked at that last week, but also in his temptation. Again, how is that? The fact is that we live in a world where you will face temptation. Again, it doesn't matter, again, if you go and become a, become a recluse and go live in a monastery, which I wouldn't recommend. But again, the thing, and again, I, I, I'll just leave society, and again, then I'll get away of temptation. Then I'll get away from temptation. No, you won't. You, you, again, again your, your heart is still deceitful. Again, your, your, your thoughts, can, you can still sin in your thoughts and in your heart and in your motivation and even in your actions. It's going to recognize that temptations are all around us living in this world but jesus christ was also tempted hebrews 2 17 through 18 says wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to god to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted he is able to succor them that are tempted That word sucker means to aid, to relieve, to help. Again, he has been tempted. He has suffered being tempted. He didn't give in to temptation. 
But because of that, he is able to come alongside us as our faithful high priest and come alongside and, again, pray for us and help us and strengthen us and, and, and aid us in our walk with God to overcome temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So, yes, Jesus was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He overcame. Again, he never sinned. He never gave in to sin. And he comes to us, he comes to his people as a sympathetic high priest, as a faithful high priest, and he gives us the grace to overcome. He gives us the help to overcome in time of need. And that is why we need to constantly be, be, be walking in close fellowship with him and leaning upon him and looking to him and calling upon him. Again, and he will come alongside and he will aid us and he will help us and he will give us the grace we need to overcome sin. Secondly, Jesus' temptation was for the purpose of displaying his sinless character. Again, we see that he was declared to be the Son of God in his baptism, but we see that, again, he, 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 he displayed that he truly was the Son of God by overcoming these temptations and all throughout his, all throughout his earthly ministry. But we find that specifically here, again, we find that he overcame sin. Again, he demonstrated his, his, his sinless nature, the fact that no, no scheme of Satan, no power of hell could, could overcome him. He stayed faithful to God. Consider number three, the power over temptation. The temptation of Christ and his victory over sin it ought, to encourage the life, ought to encourage the heart of every believer and give us hope that we too, through his help, through his aid, through his, through his strengthening grace, that we can also overcome temptation through Christ's power working in and through us. And we find three ways in which Satan tempted Christ. I mean, we can call these the three arrows of temptation. The three arrows of temptation that Satan shot at Christ, and yet we, that we also find that Satan, or I'm sorry, that Christ deflected. But what's interesting, if you go back to Genesis chapter number three, you find that it was these same three tactics, these, the, these same three arrows that were shot at our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then you go to 1 John 2 and you find that Satan's strategy hasn't changed. And the Bible lays out for us, again, what his strategy is. Again, and he shoots those same arrows our way, trying to defeat us. But it is through Christ that we can have the victory over sin. 1 John 2, verse number 16, we find what those three arrows of temptation are. We find that they are, number one, the lust of the flesh. Number two, the lust of the eyes. And number three, the pride of life. Again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You see, Satan's assault against us may be strong and may be constant, but the Bible makes it very clear that his strategy is out in the open. I don't know about you, but again, if I was, if I was a, a commander in a battle, uh, again, and if I, if I had a way to find out the enemy's strategy, I would find that out. If there was some book outlining, outlining again what their strategy was for victory, I would go and I would read that again and again and again and again. And I would know their strategy better than they knew it. Because in knowing their strategy, again, I could overcome their strategy. And in knowing the strategy of Satan, the strategy of the enemy to overcome you and to defeat you, and in looking at God's provision that he has given us to have victory in our life, again, we can avail ourselves of that provision and we can have the victory. And God's desire is that none of his children live in a life of sin, but that they pursue righteousness, that they pursue holiness, that they pursue Christ-likeness. Let's turn to Matthew chapter number four together. Let's all turn to Matthew chapter four. And I want to take a look here at the details that are given about Christ's temptation. Again, these details that are not in the Gospel of Mark, but we find here in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter number four. And I want to go over these three temptations here, and then I want to make some application at the end uh, that I believe will be a help to us this morning. So temptation number one. We find, again, the arrow that was used was the lust of the flesh. And the temptation, number one, 
Uh, again, was the lust of the flesh. Take a look at Matthew chapter number 4, verse number 3 and 4. And it says here, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So we see the first thing that Satan appealed to were the physical appetites of Christ in his humanity. The desires of the flesh, the, the, the physical desires that, that Christ would have had. Again, the, the desire uh, to fill, to, uh, to satiate his, his hunger. Again, is what Satan appealed to in this time. Now, again, remember that Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. So clearly in his humanity, again, he is hungry. He is famished. He is depleted. And so what would be so wrong with him using his divine power and turning this stone into bread? The question isn't, could he do it? He could do it. And Christ could command a stone. He command all the stones in the wilderness to be turned into bread and again have a whole feast before him. He could have done that. So why did he not do it? Why did he not turn the stone into bread? What would have been so wrong with him doing this, especially when he was so hungry? Especially in light of the fact that he, had, he hadn't eaten anything for 40 days and 40 nights. So the question isn't a matter of could he do it? He could have. The question was, was it the Father's will for him? Remember that everything Jesus Christ did, he did to please the Father. Everything that Christ did was in alignment with the perfect will of the Father. And that was the question. Was this in alignment with the will of the Father? Notice who commanded him to do this. Not God the Father, but the tempter. Satan is the one who tempted him to do this. Can he appeal to him to give in to his physical appetites by turning these stones into bread, which would have been a violation of the Father's will for Christ? One Bible commentator puts it this way. He says, Satan sought to get Christ to satisfy a material need without reference to the will of God. So in other words, he sought to get Jesus to use his divine power for selfish purposes. Christ had the power to do so, but this was not in the Father's will. This would have disregarded the will of the Father, and this would have, again, this would have gone along with what Satan was telling him to do. And Satan was trying to get him to fulfill a legitimate need, the need of hunger, in a sinful way, in a way that would have been outside of the will of God. Take a look at verse number four. How did Christ respond to this? But he answered and said, it is written. So important for us to, to recognize how Satan overcame these temptations. What did Christ appeal to? Christ appealed to, and we'll see again and again he does the same, Christ appealed to the word of God. Christ appealed to the fact that God, that God's word, again, gives him, that God's word is his, is his meat. That God's word, again, is what he has submitted himself to and what he is going to obey. We find that here in verse number four, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, where did he get that from? Deuteronomy 8, verse number 3, again, is what Christ is quoting here. But we find here that Jesus made it clear that obedience to the Father was more important to him than consuming his physical desires. Obedience to the Father was more important than consuming bread to fill one's stomach. In John chapter 4, verse 32, Jesus said this. He said, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Again, in that verse, what that's speaking about is the fact that, again, Christ's source of strength was not physical bread. Christ's source of strength was obedience to the Father. This is what he was here for, to submit himself to the will of the Father, to obey the will of the Father in everything. But like we talked about, Satan's strategies, again, haven't really changed since the beginning of time. If you go back to Genesis 3, again, I'll, I'll read this for you, but Genesis 3, verse 6, we find Satan appealing to the lust of the flesh when he told Eve, when he tempted Eve to partake of uh, the forbidden fruit. And he told her that the tree was good for food. It was good for food. 
Again, he appealed to her physical desires and tempted her to fulfill those outside of God's will. Outside of the boundary of God's will. And Satan does the same thing today. Now, going back to Adam and Eve, again, we recognize that God gave them a way to fulfill lawful desires. Again, God gave them a way to fulfill those desires that they had by giving them every other tree in the garden. Isn't that what God said? And again, back in the first chapters of Genesis, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but there's one tree that you can't eat of. All right, again, you can fulfill that desire that you have, again, uh, by partaking of all these other trees, but there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you can't partake of, that you can't eat of. So we see Adam and Eve had a lawful desire. Again, they had, a, they had this physical desire, and God gave them means to, uh, to satisfy that desire. But the moment they stepped outside of the boundary of God's will, the moment they stepped outside of the boundary of what God had said, they sinned against God, and they brought the consequences of sin upon themselves. And Satan does the same thing today. Satan appeals to us in the same way. Satan tempts us to uh, tempts us by the same way. By appealing to legitimate physical appetites, lawful desires, and tempting us to fulfill those in unlawful ways. Can you have all these trees to eat of? There's one tree that's off limits. What does Satan do? And he says, Look at that tree over there. Look at that fruit on the tree. Doesn't it doesn't it look delicious? Again, it is, it, is, it is a tree that is good for food. Don't you want to partake of it? And that's exactly what Satan does. Yes, God has given us so much to satisfy us. God has given us so much provision in our life. Again, we, we find our satisfaction and our joy and everything we need within the boundaries of God's perfect will. But Satan points outside of those boundaries and comes along and says, did you look at this tree over here? Did you see this tree over here? Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't this look good for food? Again, forget about all this over here that God's given you. And Satan tempts us to step outside of the boundary of God's will to fulfill a legitimate, again, lawful desire in an unlawful and a sinful way. But tragically, so many give in to that temptation. Tragically, so many lives have been ruined by those, again, who saw the fruit on the forbidden tree. Again, who stepped outside of the boundary of God's will. Who stepped outside of the boundary that God had marked and partook of it, thinking that it would truly satisfy instead of following God's will. Instead of following the word of God, instead of staying within the boundaries of God's word. Now, our motivation, like Christ, ought to be one full of obedience to the will of God. We ought to trust God. We ought to be satisfied in God to give us everything we need instead of going outside of his boundaries to try and satisfy Lawful desires in unlawful ways. So we see here the first temptation. Temptation number two was a temptation, again, called the pride of life. Temptation called the pride of life. Matthew chapter 4, verse number 5, we read here, it says, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written... He shall notice you saying that, by the way, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands. They shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus saith unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So we find here that Satan takes Christ to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and he tempts him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple to prove what? To prove that he is the Son of God. And that's, again, that's what's said right there. Again, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. Again, surely everyone would believe that you are the Son of God. Again, if you were to cast yourself off the pinnacle of this temple, and again, the angels would come and would protect you. Again, hasn't God said in his word that the angels would come and do this? And surely everyone would believe that you were the Messiah sent from God. Surely this would bring you instant glory and surely this would bring you the recognition as the Messiah. Can notice here who's quoting scripture. Satan is. Again, Satan knows how to quote scripture. But Satan always twists scripture whenever he does so. That's the thing. 
And how do you know if Satan's quoting scripture? Again, he twists it. He turns it around. He, 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 he adds things. He takes away things. Again, he, he changes what the word of God has said for his own devious means. And we see that here. Again, Satan says, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. In other words, prove it. Prove that you're the son of God. You will have instant recognition. Again, all the Jews will recognize that you truly are the Messiah. You'll receive the glory. Again, that instant glory by doing such a thing. And Satan here says, For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 91. Psalm chapter number 91. Again, sounds, sounds pretty good, right? Again, we'll see. Psalm 91, beginning in verse number 11. Now think about what we just read. Verse number 11 and 12. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. It says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Now what's missing back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6? Let me read it again. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Notice that he omitted part of the verse. Yeah? And all thy ways is, is, is totally omitted from, uh, from, from the verse that Satan quotes. Verse 11. Or sorry, verse 12 of Psalm 91. They shall bear thee up in their hands, and lest, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. So again, again, a lot of those, again, a lot of what he said was true, but notice he changed just a little bit. He took out a very important part of the verse, a very important part of the promise that this that these verses pertain to. What is he doing? He's twisting scripture. He's twisting scripture for his own evil, uh, for his own evil intentions. Now, Jesus knew that Satan here was tempting God. He was presuming upon God. This was not part of the Father's plan. Again, God the, Father, God the Father's plan for Christ was not to go up to the pinnacle of the temple and to cast himself down, proving that he was the Messiah, doing something sensational to prove that he was truly the Son of God. If that was the Father's will, God the Father would have told him to do that, but that was not the Father's will. This, again, disregarded the will of the Father. Consider this quote by one Bible commentator. I like how he puts this. He says, The temptation was for Jesus to demonstrate that he was the Messiah by performing a sensational stunt. He could achieve glory without suffering. He could bypass the cross and still reach the throne. But this action would be outside the will of God. And Satan is tempting God. He's presuming upon the promises of God. He's, he's twisting scripture, trying to get Christ to do this. Again, showing him, trying to show him that he would, he could achieve glory without suffering. He could bypass the cross and still reach the throne. But notice once again how Christ responded. Jesus said unto him, it is written again. He points him back to the revealed word of God. It is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Going back to the Garden of Eden, again, we see that the same, the same tactics were used against uh, Adam and Eve. And Satan came along again in, in Genesis 3, 6. Again, he pointed out the tree with the fruit upon it. And he said, it would, it, again, it was, it was a tree desired to make one wise. Can you want true wisdom? You want true knowledge? Again, you're missing out. What God's given you isn't enough. What God's provided, you need, you need more than that. Now, those other trees, sure, they may be good. But again, they're not trees that'll make you wise. Again, it's not fruit that'll, that'll give you true wisdom. Can come over here and, and try this. Try this fruit on this tree, and you'll be wise. And he was appealing to the pride of life, the pride of receiving personal glory without obedience to, to the Lord. And Satan does the same to us today, promising personal glory by ignoring God's will, and in doing so, we tempt God. Temptation number three, Matthew 4, verse number 8. See the lust of the eyes. Verse number 8, it says, Again, the devil taketh him, up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, 
and him only shalt thou serve. And the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. So we find here that in this third temptation, Satan shows Christ the kingdoms of the world. And he offers them to Christ upon one condition. Bow down and worship me. Now throughout the Bible, again, the Bible describes Satan, for example, as the prince of the world. The, the, the God, the little g God of this world, the, the prince and power of the air. So there is a sense in which these, these earthly kingdoms temporarily are under Satan's dominion. One day that's all going to change. We recognize that. One day Christ is going to return. Uh, again, and, and as Revelation 11 says, again, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All right, so again, all that's the kingdoms are promised to Christ. Christ is coming back to rule and to reign. Christ is coming again, and he will inherit David's throne. He will inherit all those kingly promises that were promised to, uh, again, to King David many, many years before. And Christ will come, and he will establish his kingdom. And he will rule, and he will reign over the kingdoms of men. And his reign shall be forever and ever, the Bible says. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Again, we recognize that, but what Satan was saying is you can have it now. You can have it right now. You can have the glory of reigning over all these earthly kingdoms. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. You can have the crown without the cross. You can have the throne without the suffering. Notice how Jesus, Jesus responds. Verse number 10, then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And Jesus knew that ultimately, again, the kingdoms of the world would be his. Jesus will come back one day again. He will come back and he will reign as, as king of kings and lord of lords. Again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of, of, of the Father. And to bow down and worship Satan was to disregard God's plan, which was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament that there was a cross before the crown. There was suffering before he would inherit the throne. And we go back to the garden again. Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the same way. Can he appeal to the lust of the eye, to the lust of the eyes? Again, he, 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 he pointed out this tree with the fruit upon it and he called it pleasant to the eyes. It was something that was pleasant to the eyes. And Satan does the same to us today. Again, he puts things in front of us that are pleasant to the eyes. Again, he promises, he promises us instant gratification by making things look appealing that are outside of the will of God. And that's, that's the dangerous thing with sin. You know, sin may appeal to the flesh, sin may appeal to the eyes, it may promise to bring satisfaction, but it only leads to destruction. We talked about yesterday at the Men of the Word, again, sin, sin promises a lot, but it doesn't come through with that promise. It promises joy, it promises satisfaction, but it brings death, it brings destruction, it brings, it brings pain, it brings hardship into one's life. The apple looks shiny upon the outside, right? But the inside is full of rottenness. And that's, that's, again, what Satan does with sin. He puts it in front of us and makes something look appealing to us. But again, if we know the word of God, we know that it's outside of the boundary of God's word. That's the one tree we're not allowed to eat of. But he makes it look so appealing to the eye. And he draws us in and he, he entices us with it and he, he tempts us with that sin. And we bite into the apple to find that it's putrid. To find out that it is poisoned. To find out that it is, that it is deathly. So time and time again we see these three temptations of Christ. And we see Christ's power over sin and over, and over Satan. Jesus, again, was victorious. Jesus, again, was obedient to the Father. He remained sinless through each one of these temptations. Yet I want to I just make some application now and just look, go back and look at uh, this temptation and see some ways in which we can apply it to us. All right, again, we see how Christ overcame, overcame sin, overcame temptation. And I believe we have here a pattern that shows us how we can do the same. 
Again, how believers in Jesus Christ can do the same. Again, if you're not a believer, again, then these things won't work. Again, it, you you got to start with salvation. That That's the starting point. All right? But if you're here this morning, again, and you, you, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, again, let's consider some things about temptation and about sin and about overcoming sin and about getting victory over sin in one's life. We'll get to that in just a little bit. First of all, consider the fact that you will be tempted to sin. You will be tempted to sin. Again, I don't. it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know. It doesn't matter how young or how old you are. You will be tempted to sin in this world. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without temptation. God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without temptation. Can Jesus Christ was tempted yet without sin. Can we are tempted... Injustice Christ was. And we recognize the fact that temptation to sin is a part of living in this spiritual wilderness in which we live. This world is not heaven. This world is not the garden. Uh, again, God is, God is bringing all that back one day. God is going to bring a new heavens and a new earth one day where there is no sin. But again, we're not there. We're here. We're pilgrims in this world. We don't belong here. We are in the world, but we are not of this world as believers in Jesus Christ. And we are bombarded with temptations all around us, are we not? We are bombarded with, with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. It's all around us, and especially you know, in our, in our entertainment day and age. It's never been more accessible. Sin has never been more accessible than it is today. And that is why Christians of today need to be on guard need to be watchful, need to be vigilant, need to be proactive, need to be intentional about setting up boundaries in their life, about cultivating their walk with God, about mortifying sin, about keeping short accounts with God, going to God daily, confessing sin, rejoicing in his forgiveness, and walking in the power of his spirit to overcome sin. God has given us the means for victory. God has given us the provision for victory over sin, again, but so often, again, we choose that which, that which appeals to the lust of the flesh, that which appeals to the pride of life or the lust of the eyes, and we partake of that, that, that thing that is, that is outside of the will of God. And so we sin and we bring the consequences of sin into our life. Be sober, be vigilant. Secondly, recognize that temptation in and of itself is not sin. Yielding to temptation is sin. You will be tempted. Again, you could be driving down the road and be tempted. Again, temptations are all around us. But the question is, are we, are we fighting against them? To yield to that temptation is a great sin against God. To yield to that temptation is, is sin. Is transgressing God's word. And is stepping outside of the boundary of God's will for one's life. And temptations in this life will come and go. There will be seasons that are more intense than other seasons. It's been said that you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And it's the same thing with temptation. Just as you can't keep birds from flying over your head, again, you live in a world where you're going to be confronted with temptation. From, from, from many different sources, from many different directions, in many different ways, you will be tempted in this world. That's part of living in a fallen world. But the question is learning. Again, are you learning how to battle against sin? Are you learning how to battle against those temptations and to be proactive and to be intentional and not to give in to those sins? And not going along with that temptation to sin. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, we find here that God has promised, again, that he can, that he can give us the grace to overcome sin. To have true victory within our life. 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 13. Listen as I read. It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Okay, so don't think that your temptation is somehow different than, than what everybody else has ever experienced. Again, ever since the fall of man, again, mankind has been tempted to sin. And the, the human heart is, is, is still uh, deceitful and, and desperately wicked. You know, this world is still filled with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But we find here there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, 
who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now that's not saying you're not going to be tempted. You will be tempted. But every time you're tempted, God will also make a way for you to escape that temptation. But when we choose to sin, we're choosing to reject God's offer. We're choosing to reject God's grace that will help us to overcome that sin. We're choosing to reject the escape route that God has given us to flee from that sin. So notice here, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that he may be able to bear it. James chapter number one. James chapter number one. And we recognize that sin, can we sin whenever we yield to temptation. We sin whenever we yield to temptation. James chapter number one, verse number 14 and 15. You see here the, the, the process of, again, how somebody sins. The Bible lays it out for us. Again, where it starts and where it ends if you yield to it. Verse number 14, but every man is tempted. Okay, let's just stop right there. And everyone is tempted. All right, again, it is, a, it is a universal thing that all of us have to deal with. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Remember the shiny apple? And Satan dangles that in front of us. It, it looks appealing. It looks enticing. It looks, it looks wonderful. So we find here every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his lust. He's enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. So we find here that something changes in verse number 15. You have the temptation, but in verse 15, you have someone yielding to the temptation. And, and again, it's, it's spoken of as, as, as with, the, with the phrase, lust hath conceived. That means, again, you've given in to that lust. Instead of, instead of rejecting that, that, that thought, instead of rejecting that, that, that appealing desire, again, you give in to it. And notice it brings forth sin. But notice the result of this. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Sin only brings death. It'll bring death into one's life. Whether that's as an unbeliever, again, sin brings eternal death. Or whether that's as a believer, again, sin brings spiritual death within your life. And yes, your relationship with God is, is, is still there, again, as a believer in Christ, but at the same time, Again, you bring the consequences of sin into your life. You bring the destructive, the, the destructive effects of sin into your life. Sin will destroy you. And it will destroy those around you. It will destroy your family. It, it will destroy those that you love the most. So we see that we sin whenever we yield to temptation. Third, consider the keys to victory over sinful temptation. Number one. Submission to God's word. Okay, what did Jesus Christ keep going back to? He kept going back to the fact that, again, it is written in the word of God. He says, it is written. He kept appealing to God and to his word. Again, his goal, his motivation in life was the will of God, was submission to the Father, was full and complete obedience to the Father. In James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, that's an encouraging promise. You mean that I can do something in my life to, so that Satan flees, so that he goes the other way? Yes, you can. But the promise is only applied to those who obey the first part of the verse. So what's the first part of the verse? Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So submission to the will of God. Number two is the sword of the spirit. Uh, Ephesians 6.17 refers to God's word as the sword of the spirit. And we find that every time that Christ was tempted by Satan, that Christ responded with the word of God. He pointed Satan back to the word of God and he quoted it correctly. He said, it is written. And that is why we need to recognize this morning that if we are weak in the word, then we're going to be weak in the fight against temptation. Again, if we are weak in our knowledge and our application of the word of God, then we will be weak when Satan comes along and we're going to be an easy target. 
That is why the word of God is so important in our life. So how can we use the word of God to overcome sin? How can we use the sword of the spirit to slay sin within our life? A couple of things. Number one, know the word of God. Again, this a lot of this is just basic stuff. But again, this stuff applied in your life. Again, we'll, we'll put you in a place again where you're not again where you're not uh, being being shot down by the temptations of, of of Satan again and again and again, but where you can actually walk in victory. So number one is know the Word of God. That means that means opening up the Word of God when you go home, not just putting it up on a shelf and letting it gather dust all week, but opening the Word of God, studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God, saying like Job again, God, your Word is more important than my necessary food. Yes, again, I need breakfast and lunch and dinner, but this is more important than even that. Filling my soul with the word of God is more important than even filling, than filling my stomach with food. Studying the word of God, sending the preaching of the word of God on a regular basis. We need to know the word of God. Number two, we need to memorize the word of God. We need to memorize the word of God. Psalm 119, verse number 11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Now that's a verse that most of us in this room have probably heard before. I think probably all of us have at some point and probably many times. That's probably a verse that you have memorized. Uh, I'm sure many of us do. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. But so often we think of that verse and we apply, we apply it to children, right? Again, children need to memorize scripture. But so should adult Christians. Again, that, that doesn't just apply if, if you're 12 and under. That applies to whatever age you are. Again, I think that adult Christians should challenge themselves even more, again, than, than children to memorize the word of God. Again, we're facing a whole lot more temptations and challenges uh, than, even, than even young, than even children are. Again, and how much we need the word of God. We need the word of God hidden in our heart that we might not sin against God. Psalm 37, verse number 31. Psalm 37, verse number 31 uh, the Bible says, the law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The law of God can, again, is this true about you? The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Psalm 40, verse number 8. Psalm 40, verse number 8. It says, I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is written within my heart. Again, do you delight in the will of God? Is the law of God written upon your heart? Again, do you store it away? Do you tuck it away in, in your heart through memorization? Number three is meditating on God's word. Joshua chapter number one. Joshua chapter number one, verse number eight. Listen as I read. The Bible says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Psalm chapter 1, verse number 2. Psalm chapter 1, verse number 2. Verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor setteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. See, we have to recognize the truth that, again, all of us meditate upon something. Whether you recognize it or not, as you go about your day, every second of the day you are meditating upon something. And you are thinking about something. You, are, you have something going on in, in your mind. And you are either meditating upon truth or you're meditating upon lies. You're meditating upon that which is righteous and that which is holy, or you're meditating upon that which is depraved and that which is that which is sinful. Again, what we choose to meditate upon often becomes the actions of our life, often results in the actions of our life. If I meditate upon God and his word and holiness and truth and righteousness, Again, then the outflow of my life is going to be a life of, 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 of walking with God and, and serving God and, and loving God and worshiping God. But if, I'm, if, if, my, if my mind is in the gutter, again, if, I am, if my thoughts are debased and, and, and sinful and I am meditating upon that which is, which is unholy and unrighteous, don't be surprised when that, becomes, uh, when, when that becomes, again, evident in your life. When that becomes the path that you start going down. Sin always begins in the mind. 
Sin always begins in the mind, and so often that is where the battle is won or lost, is in the mind. What thoughts somebody entertains? Can somebody who entertains unlawful thoughts, sinful thoughts, and what usually happens with them? They lose the battle. And they find themselves bound in sin, and then they wonder, what happened? Then how did I end up in, the, in, 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 this, in this prison house of sin that I can't get out of? On the other hand, again, as we entertain thoughts of God and that which is lawful and that which is right and that which is holy, again, it drives us to God and it brings us, again, again it brings us close to God in our walk where we can truly live a life that is honoring to him. I want to share a quote with you, and this is taken from a book that the men went through um, last year called Changed into His Image. And the author shares this with us. He says, sin starts with a deception, often a twisted truth. We mull over in our mind the deception, consider the benefits of indulgence until we are so convinced of its virtues that we choose to embrace it. Only then do we find that a hook is embedded in the lure. Understand then that we will meditate. We will meditate on truth, inflaming our desires for God, or we will meditate upon lies, inflaming our desires for things that will become idolatrous replacements for him. Meditation is not an option. We will meditate. Our only option is the choice of fuel for our meditation. And then lastly... And learn to use the word of God. The word of God is referred to as a sword for a reason. Uh, again, a, a, a battle-ready soldier of ancient times knew how to use his sword. And he, he practiced with his sword. Again, he was aware of, of the dimensions of his sword. He was aware of, again, what, his, what he was able to do with his sword. Again, he knew his sword so that when he went out into the battlefield, again, he knew how to use it effectively. He knew how to slay the enemy with the sword. And the Bible is an offensive weapon. The Bible is called the sword of the spirit for a reason. And in John chapter number 14, verse number 26, we have a, we have a, a verse that I think is helpful for us this morning. John 14, verse number 26, it says this. It says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So what is that verse saying? That verse is saying that one of the ministries of the Spirit of God and the life of the believer is to bring to the mind of the believer the word of God. Okay? To bring to the mind of the believer God's words. But here's the thing to recognize. You, again, maybe you wonder why. Well, why does that ever happen to me? Maybe there's a reason for that. All right, the Spirit of God cannot remind you of something you don't know. Okay, the Spirit of God is not just going to zap you with Bible knowledge. The Spirit of God, again, reminds you of the truth of the Word of God that you have hidden in your heart. It reminds you of the truth of the Word of God, again, that you have tucked away, that you have learned, that you have, that you have embraced into your life. And this is important to keep in mind as you remember that Satan is very good at quoting Scripture. And he's great at leaving out a thing or two, at twisting it, at adding some nuance into the Scripture that makes it appear right. When it's actually when it's actually wrong, and again, it is it is undermining the word of God, and it's destructive whenever it is believed. Recognize that Satan again knows the word of God, but as believers, we need to know it better than he does. We need to know how to use it. We need to have it hidden in our hearts. We need to be meditating upon the word of God. We need to be in the word of God, not just on Sundays, but, but every day throughout the week. We need to be in the word of God. We need to be meditating upon thoughts that are right and that are holy and that are just. And how do we get those thoughts? Through the word of God. We defeat the lies of Satan. We defeat the temptations of Satan in our life by the truth of the word of God. So I hope that's helpful for you this morning. Uh, again, that, uh, some of these things are more practical in nature, and again, I, uh, again, I, uh, I intended it for it to be that way, but I also think the passage is, is very practical in nature, and I hope, that is, I hope that is something that, again, you're able to take and you're able to apply this week. Uh, you're able to start putting into your life um, and living out on a daily basis. All right, let's go to have a word of prayer at this time. Father, we come before you, Lord, and God, we thank you, Father, for the truth of your word that we have seen this morning God, as we look at the life of our Savior and as we examine how he overcame the temptations of the tempter, God, help us to recognize, Lord, that in this life we will be tempted, God. 
God, we can't avoid, uh, Lord, many of the temptations uh, that we see around us, in our, especially in our world today. God, but we can choose to, uh, to respond to those in the right way and to overcome temptation and to live a life of spiritual victory. God, I pray, Lord, if anyone here today has never been saved, Lord, they've never, there's never been a time in their life when they've repented and, and trusted in Christ alone to save them. I pray today would be the day when they'd call upon Christ and recognize, Lord, God, that they will never have victory over sin, Lord, without, first of all, salvation. Salvation is the starting point. And God, I pray for each and every believer in here, and I pray, God, for spiritual victory in their life. I pray, God, that they would learn to use the sword of the Spirit, to memorize it, to read it, to meditate upon it, or to know it, uh, to be able to use it to respond to the temptations of Satan. God, I pray that we would meditate upon that which is holy and that which is right, Lord, rather than that which is debased and, and sinful. And God, I recognize, Lord, just uh, the seriousness of sin. God, we live in a culture that doesn't, that doesn't even blush at sin anymore. Uh, God, but I pray that none of us would ever become, uh, Lord, that callous towards sin. God, I pray, but I pray, Lord, that we would have, a, a Lord, a hatred of sin. God, I pray that we would see the, just the destructiveness of it, Lord. God, so many lives have been ruined, Lord. God, so many families have been, have, have been broken. God, so many, so many, Lord, people have been hurt because of sin. God, and I pray, Lord, that we would reject it, that we would fight against it, Lord, that we would, Lord, wage war against it, Lord, not in our own strength, but in your strength and your power. And God, that each and every person here would learn to overcome sin and to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to Christ. And God, I pray, Lord, today, if anyone, uh, Lord, has sin, that temptation of sin, Lord, that they keep falling into, God, I pray that they would seek out help, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, that they would recognize, Lord, that they're in a church that cares for them, Lord, that loves them and desires to help them, God. God, and I pray that they would, Lord, just take advantage of the accountability that is offered through a local church. And, and Lord, just, uh, Lord, that they would get the help they need. Father God, guide us and lead us this day, Father. Help us, Lord, to bring you glory and honor in all we do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.